So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been doing a little mini-series on some of the big questions about the Bible and Christian faith. This is the third and final one for the time being. If you're um, interested in that kind of thing, if you've got questions or you've got friends and family with questions and you'd like uh, some of those dealt with uh, in in one of the talks, um, we can't necessarily promise to have good answers to those big questions, but let us know, drop us an email or something, and uh, we'll definitely think about doing that in uh, the next term series. Well, what I want to talk about this morning is something that is probably one of, if not the biggest, of all the big questions, and that's to do with suffering. If you were here for the last series a few months ago, you may remember that I've talked about this before, back in May. So I was in two minds whether to talk about it again today. But the more that I thought about it and the more I prayed about it, the more I felt that I should. And the aspect that I'd like to focus on today is this one. Why, if God loves me and wants the best for me, why as a Christian do I suffer in life? Shouldn't we, at least, be protected from suffering? Shouldn't we get a better deal than people who aren't Christians? Now, not only is suffering one of the biggest big questions, it's also one of the hardest to talk about. Uh, In fact, I was very tempted to chicken out of talking about it this morning. I had another talk in mind as well that would have been much more fun And one of the reasons why it's difficult is that it is so easy for me to stand here and sound trite and simplistic, especially when I know there are lots of people here today who are struggling with illnesses and bereavement and challenges in life. And if not you, then perhaps some of your family and friends. You see, the the dilemma is that we believe passionately in a God who can heal and transform our lives and situations by the power of prayer through the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, we also want to be real, and we don't want to overpromise or just quote lots of nice-sounding Bible verses. We want to be full of hope and expectancy in God, but without turning him into some kind of prayer-answering machine who just needs to be programmed right to get the right answers. Now, last week, you may remember, we were talking about the Bible and how something like 75% of it is narrative and stories. And we were asking how exactly stories teach. And I was saying that one of the ways that they do that is through us reading about people's experiences of life and God in the Bible and seeing ourselves in those stories. It's because of them finding God in their battles of life that we have confidence that we can also find him in our battles of life. Because we see God transforming lives in the Bible, we see the potential for our lives to be transformed as well. In their experiences of life, good and bad, we see mirrored our experiences of life, good and bad. We see how they found God in the things that happened to them, and we learn from how they responded. So the question is, what stories or or story of someone in the Bible can tell us something about suffering? Now, we could, of course, look to Jesus. There's uh, Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 53, where it says he was despised and rejected. 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. We see Jesus was abandoned by his friends. He was betrayed, falsely accused and wrongfully convicted, physically tortured and nailed to a cross. So we could look to Jesus, especially because we know that he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. He said things like, in this world, you will have trouble. And the reason he said that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow is because today has enough troubles of its own. So we could look at Jesus, but you know, sometimes even though we know that Jesus was fully man as well as fully God, and even though we know from Hebrews that Jesus had to be made like us in every way apart from sin, even though we know all that, sometimes it doesn't feel quite right to be looking at Jesus as our example because after all we think he was God as well. So it is right, but it doesn't always feel right. So because of that, I thought we'd look at someone else's story instead. Probably the best qualified person in the whole Bible for us to use as an example of anything. Probably the central character in the whole of the New Testament, apart from Jesus. The person who wrote half the books in the New Testament. The greatest theologian in the early church. In fact, the greatest theologian of all time. But don't hold that against him. Because he was also the greatest church planter as well. He's the person from whom we get most of our Christian doctrine and most of our teaching about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, including the gift of healing. And that person is, of course, the Apostle Paul. If anyone was close to God before or since, you'd think it would be him. The man who taught us what it means to live by faith. So if health and wealth prosperity teaching is right, which says that if you've got enough faith, then you should never be sick sick, and you should never be in need because health and prosperity are the birthright of every believer. You just need to name it and claim it they say, if they're right, then you'd expect the life of the Apostle Paul to be the perfect example of that, the perfect example of what faith looks like, what faith delivers for you in terms of results when you put that into practice in the way that they say you should. Now, we first come across Paul in Acts chapter 7 and 8. And if you don't know, Acts is like the history of the early church. It comes straight after the Gospels, which tell the story of the life of Jesus. And when we first meet Paul, we'd probably call him a religious fundamentalist. He was part of the conspiracy to kill one of the early Jesus followers, someone called Stephen. He went to the high priest to get a letter of authority to go on a journey to Damascus to arrest the Jesus followers and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And it's when he's on that journey that Paul has a dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus. He sees a blinding light from heaven and he falls to the ground and he hears a voice say to him, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. 
Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And it says that Paul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions had to lead him by the hand to Damascus. And it says that he remained there blind for three days. So there's there's kind of good news and bad news in this story so far, isn't there? Paul's had this dramatic experience of Jesus, but he's blind as a result. And for some reason, Jesus doesn't tell him whether he's going to get his sight back. And then while this is going on, Jesus appears in a vision to one of the believers in Damascus, someone called Ananias, and tells him what's happening with Paul and that he's to go to a particular house and pray for him so that he'll get his sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to Ananias that Paul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And that's what happens. Paul gets this amazing calling. He's instantly healed. How great is that? So wouldn't we like to see ourselves in Paul's story so far? Wouldn't we like to be Paul? A dramatic experience of Jesus, an amazing calling, and a miraculous healing. It doesn't get much better than that, does it? Soon after that, it says that Paul's preaching became more and more powerful. I like the sound of that, too. But you know, there's a couple of little things here that weren't going quite so well for Paul alongside all of this amazing stuff. The first is that some people in Damascus were planning to murder him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate. So the believers had to lower him down outside the city wall in a basket so that he could escape back to Jerusalem. That's a bit humiliating, isn't it, for God's man of faith and power. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, people there want to murder him as well. So again, he has to run away this time back to his hometown of Tarsus. So much for living the victorious life. So in the midst of all of this blessing and calling and miraculous healing and the moving of the Holy Spirit, Paul's life is in danger. There are people who are looking to kill him. And, you know, he couldn't be sure that this wasn't going to happen just because he was called and chosen and anointed as a follower of Jesus. Because after all, so too was Stephen, who'd just been murdered by a mob himself. And Paul had been part of it. And Stephen was a pretty amazing Christian as well. It says he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace and power, who performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But none of that stopped him being killed. And this is just the start of Paul's story. We know a lot more about him from the rest of the book of Acts and from his letters to the early churches. So in Acts 14, for example, it says that God confirmed his message through Paul and Barnabas by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. In Acts 19, it says God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Great stuff. But not everything went quite so well. I can't resist uh, sharing this one story with you from Acts 20. 
Verse 7 says, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. We don't know whether this happened in the morning service or the evening service. Think about that for a moment. But I do like the biblical precedent here. Think you've got problems with 30 minutes. And then verse 9 says, Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on. If you are a young man here today, or even not so young man, you may be thinking, I know how he feels. I'm embarrassed to say that this actually happened to me once in our old church. Um, It was an elderly lady, and she was sitting right uh, in the middle. And that was really off-putting, because I was worried sick she might be dead. (laughs) It's it's one thing sending people to sleep. It's another thing entirely to kill them off. (laughs) Because it's not the sort of thing that your reputation really ever recovers from. Anyway, so this guy, Eutychus, is sitting on this window ledge and he falls fast asleep. It's a third floor window and he falls backwards, hits the ground and dies. And that's not funny. Uh, That's the serious bit. Anyway, there there is a good bit coming. Fortunately, God is good to Paul and even more so to Eutychus. Uh, Paul prays for him and he comes back to life. So it's another miraculous healing in Paul's ministry. God definitely bailed him out of that one. So at this point, despite the occasional setback, things are looking pretty good. Yes, the old person falls asleep and dies in his sermons, but at least God heals them and brings them back to life again. Yes, there's a few people in a few places who are trying to kill him, but basically things are good. So if Paul was drafting his resume for his personal ministry website at this point, it would probably have said, Paul of Tarsus, internationally renowned, gifted, anointed, prophetic, miraculous, apostolic healing ministry. Donate now. (laughs) Evening meetings available by appointment, ground floor only, please. (laughs) Now, talking of uh, Paul's personal website, uh, obviously he would have also needed some carefully lit, soft focus photos Uh, to make him look 10 years younger, uh, whiten his teeth a bit, and give him a spiritual kind of aura. The epitome of a good-looking, authoritative, living-in-victory kind of a guy. Uh, You've probably seen that kind of thing on the internet. But in Paul's case, that might have been a little bit difficult. Uh, You need to know that Photoshop was relatively underdeveloped in the first century. (laughs) Uh, But even if it had been, it probably would have had its work cut out. We don't know from the Bible exactly what Paul looked like, but there is a description of him in a second century document called the Acts of Paul, where it says this. He was small in stature, crooked in the legs, thin-haired upon the head, with eyebrows that met in the middle, hollow-eyed, with a large crooked nose. (laughs) And then it says, and full of grace. Now, I've always wondered whether that's because they felt a bit guilty about the description and uh, they just added that to make him feel a bit better. 
But you know, if Paul had been promoting his ministry online today, I, I think he'd have needed a bit more work than just Photoshop. Maybe a body double instead. Anyway, moving on. That bit wasn't really relevant, but this bit is. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is trying to deal with the fact that his opponents, some so-called super-apostles, are trying to take over the church that he planted and discredit him and his ministry. And these are their two basic arguments. Number one, that Paul himself is not a very impressive person. And number two, they say he suffered far too much to be a real apostle. If God was really with him, if God loved him, if God was right behind his ministry, then so many things wouldn't have gone wrong in his life, would they? I wonder whether you feel that sometimes. I wonder whether people are thinking, whether you wonder whether people are thinking that about you. You know, it's a tragedy when people feel they have to stop coming to church because they're ashamed of some things that have happened in their lives because they're not living in victory. So Paul writes to the church and he feels the need to defend himself and his ministry, to lay out his qualifications compared to these so-called super-apostles who the Corinthians think look so impressive compared to him. His opponents have been boasting about their accomplishments. I guess the church had been reading their website resumes. So Paul says, okay, folks, it's time for me to do a bit of boasting of my own. And and he says this. This is how he defends himself. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. When I was with you and didn't have enough to live on, I didn't become a financial burden to anyone. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Uh, By the way, that's throwing stones at him. Yeah, just in case anyone was, was wondering. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've travelled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts and on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food and I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. I wonder how many of those things you and I would have to experience before we decided that God didn't love us, that he clearly wasn't for us, that we obviously didn't have enough faith because otherwise those things wouldn't have happened. Maybe it would have been the first time that we were shipwrecked, or the second time, or the third time. The first time that we found ourselves without food and didn't have enough to live on. That's exactly what the people who teach a health and wealth gospel would be telling Paul. You need to sort your theology out, mate, and start living in the victory that's the destiny of all believers. 
We don't want your kind of testimony at our conferences. But Paul is challenging the accepted wisdom in this super spiritual Corinthian church. He's challenging it and he's turning it upside down. He's saying the very things that you think are evidence that God doesn't love me and isn't with me and hasn't called me are actually nothing of the sort because it's called life. And sometimes stuff happens and sometimes it doesn't. But I love God anyway. Sometimes God miraculously rescues me and intervenes in the stuff that happens and sometimes he doesn't or he doesn't seem to or not the way that we would always like him to. So the question is, what am I going to do about it if he doesn't? If life doesn't deal me the hand that I would like it to? Do I only love God because of what happens in life when it's good? Or will I also love him in spite of what happens when bad things happen as well? Am I going to let the things that happen come between me and God? Which is sadly something that some Christians do. It's as if they feel that God has broken his side of a deal. I give my life to you and you make my life good in return. So they kind of get their own back on God, as it were, by stopping coming to church and being angry with him. And all that is probably because they've been sold the wrong kind of gospel in the first place. And then, as if this catalogue of suffering wasn't enough, Paul starts talking about something else that he has to live with, something else that is embarrassing and that his opponents are using to undermine his credibility and his ministry. It's something that's very well known, in fact, so much so that it's become a catchphrase that you've probably heard. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some kind of physical infirmity or illness that he's got. This is what Paul himself says about it. I've received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now he says, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Now when he says three different times, I don't think he means that he filled in three prayer request cards or that he just rattled off three quick prayers on the way to work and then just gave up. I think he means some pretty intense times of prayer ministry, of intercession and maybe prayer and fasting as well over a long period of time. But he didn't get what he asked for, even though he had seen many healings in his ministry. So Paul was ministering healing to people while he was in need of healing himself. He was praying for the Holy Spirit to move powerfully and intervene in their lives and situations when he personally had a track record of suffering that was as long as your arm. Maybe that is an encouragement to some of us to do the same. Rather than boast about his powerful, spirit-filled ministry, I love the fact that Paul said, if I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. 
I will boast only about my weaknesses. No wonder his opponent said that he was unimpressive. I ask you, would you buy the books of somebody like Paul? Would you join the church of somebody like Paul? And for someone who's got as many weaknesses as I have, this is quite an important question. But you know, this is the man from whom we get our understanding of faith. This is the man from whom we get our understanding of the gifts of the Spirit, and especially the gift of healing. The man who wrote half the New Testament. And he's got a chronic illness that isn't responding to prayer. On top of all that stuff we've just heard about. We don't know what his ailment was. It was probably an eye condition or maybe a speech defect. But either way, it just adds to the evidence that Paul didn't look very impressive or sound very impressive by human standards. I don't think that they would have wanted him on God TV. Not a good enough advert for the victorious Christian life. One look at Paul and the donations would probably stop coming in. But actually... I didn't say it quite right a moment ago because it wasn't that God didn't answer Paul's prayer those three times that he prayed. God did. Each time, Paul says, God spoke to him and each time God gave him the same answer. And this was it. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So these so-called super-apostles are saying, you don't want to listen to someone like Paul, who's had all these things go wrong in his life and his ministry. You want to listen to us. We're the kind of leaders that you want to follow. Tune in to our Believer's Voice of Victory broadcasts, not Paul's Believer's Voice of Weakness broadcasts. But God says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Who'd have thought that? So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses, says Paul, so that the power of Christ can work through me. John Wimber, who founded the vineyard, used to say, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp, which is a reference to the story of Jacob in Genesis 32. But he could just as easily have been talking about Paul. Actually, I don't know about you, but... I think I'd rather listen to someone like Paul than these so-called super-apostles. I prefer Paul's boasting to their boasting. And the reason that I'd rather listen to Paul is because Paul's experience of life is more like my experience of life. So when I'm asking God the question, why? Why has this happened? Is it because I didn't have enough faith or I'm not trusting you enough? There's really no point in me listening to what these super apostles have to say. I want to know what Paul has to say because I know that he's been there, done that and got the first century equivalent of the t-shirt. So that's what I'd like to finish off with this morning. Three bits of Paul's wisdom because we know that this guy Paul is authentic. We know that he isn't just going to quote some lovey-dovey proof text to us and give us impossible expectations that don't match reality. We know that Paul had a powerful supernatural ministry, but we also know that it wasn't about him in the least. No theatricals, no limelight, 
no personality cult. It was all about Jesus. So three things that I think Paul would say to us if he was here now talking to us about what we're going through. Three things that he said to his own churches 2,000 years ago. The first thing that I think he'd say is always be thankful. Isn't it true that so often we forget to be thankful people? There's an old hymn that goes like this. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That rhymes. It's good, isn't it? So when he's writing to his churches, Paul says, be thankful. And he says it over three dozen times. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Being thankful is also the context in which we should be praying for the things that we need. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18, no matter what happens, always be thankful. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Number two, believe that all things work together for good. Now this is not the same thing as saying all things are good in themselves. Because frankly, some things are rubbish, aren't they? If you've experienced some rubbish in life or your friends and family have, then you know exactly what I mean. And sometimes the blessings and the rubbish happen together, as they did for Paul. Romans 28, 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, believing that all things work together for good is not living in denial or saying that it's all good when it patently isn't all good. It's trusting God and loving him anyway. This is not Paul saying, live in unreality. This is Paul finding God in reality. And then finally, number three, God invites us to discover him as the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Maybe that's the name of God that you haven't come across before. It's in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. He doesn't just want us to have a stiff upper lip and be terribly British and carry on regardless. This is not about British stoicism in the face of adversity. It's about finding God and knowing God as the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort in our adversity. That's who God wants to be to us when we're going through it. That was Paul's experience when he was going through it. And this is what also stops us over-focusing on our own troubles, just being obsessed with ourselves. Because here is the full version of that verse. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So maybe when you're going through it yourself is the very best time for you to be ministering to others. Paul discovered this truth that God's power works best in weakness. 
he probably would have settled for discovering that truth without the suffering. But he knew that it wasn't evidence that God wasn't with him, God hadn't called him, or God didn't love him. And that's kind of countercultural, isn't it? It's not the sort of thing we often hear Christians talking about. Those so-called super-apostles certainly didn't get it. They assumed that weakness was the opposite of power, as some Christians do today. But it isn't. Scripture tells us God's power works best in weakness. So maybe I could ask Dan to come back if you're here somewhere. Thanks. Okay, so quick reminder, three things. Paul says, number one, no matter what happens, always be thankful. So why don't we decide today to be thankful people who count our blessings? Number two, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. So let's cling on to that promise when bad things happen. And number three, God is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive. So let's invite God to do that for us and to be that for us. And let's also start to do that and to be that for others, shall we?